let us get into the word. We're continuing our morning series on judges under the, the, the theme of being kingless. This morning we're going to be examining Judges 6, verses 11 to 18. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true, given to us in love for our good. Israel was bordered by the nomadic and scavenger Midianites. They had no country of their own, but rather wandered from place to place, robbing and pillaging weaker groups. We read here that the Israelites had fallen so low that they now had become prey for them, for the Midianites. What the Midianites would do is wait for the Israelites to sow the seed, work the fields, and then they would come and take the harvest. Of course, Moses wrote that this is exactly what would happen if the people fell away from the Lord. Deuteronomy 28 in part reads, The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth swooping down like the eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand, a hard-faced nation who shall not respect the old or show mercy to the young. It shall eat the offspring of your cattle and the fruit of your ground until you are destroyed. It also shall not leave you grain, wine, or oil, the increase of your herds or the young of your flock until they have caused you to perish. So they were suffering under the curse that comes with idolatry. We see here that the enemies God used started getting lower and lower on the totem pole. Earlier, we read where kings with armies would come and rise up against Israel. But now it's just scavengers. 
the lowest, least sophisticated of their enemies are now having their way with Israel. They stole their livestock and their crops, shamefully forcing the people to hide in mountains and caves. We read that this went on for seven years until the people finally cried out to the Lord. But there is a despairing seeking for God that is motivated not because we have come face to face with the weight of our own sin, but merely because of felt needs. Even today, people will often become very religious in times of difficulty, only to fall away and turn back to their previous infidelity once their needs are met. We read earlier that in response to their cries, the Lord did not send a blessing, but rather he sent a prophet. Commentator Dale Ralph Davis writes, That would be like a stranded motorist calling a garage for assistance, and the garage sends a philosopher instead of a mechanic. The curtain rises on Gideon for the first time in an obscure place. There is no wine. Deuteronomy 28 tells us that wine is a sign of God's blessing upon the land. And the Israelites at this time were far from walking in God's blessing. Typically, a wine press was in a space dug under the ground in an enclosed area where the juice that was collected from the grapes that would have been crushed could easily be gathered. By contrast, wheat was beat on a threshing floor, usually a flat, elevated outdoor area set atop a hill so that the wheat was exposed to the open air. Sheaves would have been laid out and either beaten with a flail or it would have had oxen drag heavy objects over it to separate the wheat from the dirt. Here... Gideon is attempting to sift wheat in a place where wheat is not meant to be sifted. He's in a small enclosed area where there is not going to be enough airflow to separate the wheat from the chaff easily. As if separating wheat from chaff was not hard enough. But you see, friends, he's in hiding. The imagery itself is quite telling. The threshing floor is a place of revelation, decision, reckoning. Ruth was met by the kinsman redeemer at the threshing floor. David was met by God at the threshing floor of Arona the Jebusite. The same place where Solomon would later build the temple. The judgment of our Lord upon the earth is alluded to as the threshing floor, where he will put out his sickle and separate the wheat from the chaff. The threshing floor is a place of great solemnity, where God meets with his people to do business. And the angel of the Lord meets Gideon in that solemn place. That the angel meets Gideon at the threshing floor signifies three things. First, it signifies a separation. 
a separation of Gideon from his idolatrous father's house, and later a separation of those who would go with him into battle. Second, it signifies a reckoning, a reckoning of Gideon with his own insignificance and how a people who were called to such greatness could fall to such misfortune. Third, the threshing floor signifies a calling, a calling that would make a weak man strong and turn an idolatrous people back to their God. So we shall examine this passage looking at three assurances God gives Gideon along with his three responses under these three headings. First, the calling. Second, the confidence. And third, the comfort. This leads us to our first heading, the calling. Verse 12. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. It would appear that the angel of God was speaking to Gideon sarcastically. Some have claimed that God was speaking to what Gideon was to become. That's not how the text reads. The Lord is not speaking to Gideon's situation He's speaking to Gideon's heart. It's easy to say that he was fearful and cowardly. But man looks on the outward appearance. God sees the heart. And it's Gideon's heart that God is speaking to. So when God says Gideon is a mighty man of valor, he's speaking to his character. There is a difference between who you are and what you do. Who you are is not what you do. God spoke to who Gideon was, not, what to, not to what he was doing. This is the kingdom dynamic of strength and weakness. Man looks at strength from a carnal external perspective, but God looks on the heart. And when he looks at Gideon's heart, he sees a man of strength and valor. We tend to look at what someone is doing in the natural, their natural abilities and strengths to determine their ability and giftedness in the use of the church. God does not work that way. I guarantee you no Israelite would have happened upon Gideon threshing wheat in a hidden wine press and thought this is the guy who's going to be the guy who delivers us from the Midianites. Gideon's response, verse 13. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. Gideon's response tells us three things. First, he points out Israel had endured seven years of oppression meted out by the raiders. He could not reconcile the great events of his people's history. The exodus from Egypt, the entry into the promised land, being led by a pillar of fire by day and a 
by night rather and a cloud by and a cloud by day the people received manna straight from heaven and now the suffering that they're enduring at the hands of their enemies he could not reconcile how it was that the people had turned their backs on such a great god he's looking back on the glory days and wondering why all was this apostasy going on Second, we see Gideon's response is not about himself. It's about the people. Gideon doesn't ask the angel, why is this happening to me? He asks the angel, why has this befallen the people? This gives us great insight into his heart. His concern is not for himself, but his concern is for the people. The shame of his people who had turned their backs on such a great God weighed more on him than the shame of having to thresh wheat in a secret wine press. Third, Gideon was seeing things that no one else was seeing. That he was aware of how far Israel had fallen. That it weighed on him so heavily. These were self-evident that he was a man of real vision and character. When a leader is more concerned about his reputation, selling books, conference invitations, than he is over the well-being of the people, I believe his true calling is called into question. Gideon is not a man of ambition, but he's burdened on behalf of the people. Gideon completely pours out his heart. He feels the weight of the burden of sin upon the people. We see that his heart is that of a true leader. Similar to Moses. When Moses stood between the wrath of God and the people, God tests Moses, telling him that he will wipe out the lineage of Abraham and make a new people with himself. But Moses' heart was for the people. This is the mark of a true man of God. Not someone seeking to make a name for themselves or an opportunist filled with personal ambition. But a man who stands before God, hurt over the state of the people. Pope Gregory the Great writes in his book, The Book of Pastoral Rule. He who seeks not the good work of ministry, but only the glory of honor, testifies against himself that he does not desire the office. For a man does not love the sacred office, nor does he even understand it, if by craving a position of spiritual leadership, he is nourished by the thought of subordinating others, rejoices at being praised, elates his heart by honor, or exalts in the abundance of his affluence. Truly it is worldly gain that masks itself under this type of honor, when in fact worldly gain should be destroyed. And when the mind thinks to appropriate the pinnacle of humility for its own benefit, it inwardly changes what it outwardly desires. Friends, the call of God is a call, first and foremost, a call to a place of rigorous honesty. I believe that this is the significance of the threshing floor. This is a place of reckoning. Gideon was called, but he was first called to a place of reckoning, a place of honesty. 
And it was there that he had to reckon with his own weakness and the sinfulness of the people. He was a man of valor because he was honest about himself. He was honest about the people and his burden for them. The call of God is not first and foremost a call to go and do something, but a call to be something. A man of honesty. Honest about your own weakness. Honest about your own sinfulness. Honest about your own shame and that of the people. If you cannot be honest about yourself, you cannot be honest with God or anyone else. Character matters. What people see and what God sees are not the same. Who you are when no one is around and the hidden thoughts of the heart is what determines in, your, in God's eyes whether or not you're a mighty man of valor. How we may present ourselves to one another matters not. There's a huge difference between image and character. Image is how people see you. Character is how God sees you. I believe that there's a reason why Gideon's character is addressed before he's sent. It's because your character is what qualifies you for being sent. Haven't we seen it too many times? Men living lives of sin who try to hide behind their calling? The evidence of your calling is your character. As I said before, the call of God is not necessarily a call to go and do something. It's a call to be something. So this message is not only for men who are wrestling with the call to church office. This is about every man who names the name of Christ. Our call is a foremost a call to walk with God, living lives crucified unto him, rejecting all that is ungodly and sinful, reflecting his glory in all that we do in the workplace, in the home, when no one's around. Friends, the threshing floor is just you and God. So the question must be asked, have you had a threshing floor experience with the Lord? Have you come to a reckoning with God? Have you been honest with yourself about your own weakness, your own sinfulness? Are you burdened for God's people, zealous for his glory? This is where the call of God begins. This leads us to our next heading, the confidence, verse 14. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. God gives Gideon a second assurance. His first assurance was that he was a mighty man of valor. Here he assures Gideon of victory. The assurance of Gideon's might was not rooted in his valor, but rather the assurance of his might was that he was being sent by God. 
So the confidence Gideon could take was not that he had some untapped hidden ability, but he could rest in knowing that he had been called and sent by God. Whatever he wasn't, God would make him to be. Whatever he didn't have, God would be that. Often a lack of confidence in us being able to do what God has called us to is really a lack of confidence in God. You have to know that you have been called and you don't attempt to do something for God when you've not been sent. That's a recipe for disaster. There are two serious flaws to be avoided in ministry. Being too fearful to be of use and being too strong to be of use. In the first instance, we see this typified in the 22,000 who were too fearful to fight the Midianites in the next chapter. In the second instance, we see being too strong to be used for the Lord in Samson. One thinks he's got nothing to offer, and the other thinks he's got everything to offer. Confidence without a calling is the same as no confidence with a calling. And the hinge upon which they both swing is trusting in your own strength. Gideon is wrestling with this. Look at his response. Verse 15. Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. Here, Gideon is coming to terms with the crushing reality of his own weakness. But he's not asking this in a lack of faith. He's actually asking this in faith. He's asking based upon who he is and where he comes from, how is the Lord going to do this through him? Now, all the things he cites as obstacles are entirely true. Manasseh was the smallest tribe, and his clan, descended from Abiezer, was the least prominent. Effectively, they were peasants. Being from the smallest tribe, they had the least political pull. They were recipients of the leftovers from the major tribes. So what he's asking is, how can God use the least influential man from a peasant tribe to save Israel? Remember, he's still in the threshing floor. He's trying to reconcile his weakness with God's calling. He's wrestling through how God can use him to accomplish this. He's dealing with what would appear to be on the outside all of the things in life that are not in his favor. He embraces the harsh reality that he's no one, he comes from nothing, and he has nothing to offer. Friends, embracing your inadequacy for God's call is inherent in the calling. Moses, I am no speaker. Jeremiah, I am but a child. Both expressed their inadequacy, yet they still went and did what God called them to do. 
we must embrace our inadequacy and come to terms with it because it is then when we become reliant upon God's adequacy. This is where we really need to be in order to be used by God. I believe that the clearest contrast that we see with Gideon and the value of the threshing floor experience and reconciling weakness in our call of God can be seen in Samson. After a lifetime of presumption and confidence in his own strength, it was only at the end of his life when he was brought low that he was of any real use to the Lord. Samson only embraced his weakness in his last hour. And in his last hour, God was able to use him greatly. Gideon embraced his weakness at the beginning and was used by God in great ways his entire life. There's a huge difference. You cannot be too weak to be used by God, but you can be too strong. Now, this is a long quote, but I think it sums it up well. In his book, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, 17th century Puritan pastor Thomas Brooks writes, Ah, says Satan, as you are worthy of the greatest misery, so you are unworthy of the least crumb of mercy. The remedy against this device of Satan is seriously to consider that God has nowhere in the scripture required any worthiness in the creature. If you make a diligent search in all of the scripture, you shall not find from the first line in Genesis to the last line in Revelation one word that, speak, that speaks out of God's requiring any worthiness in the creature. Ah, sinners, Remember, Satan objects your worthiness against you as a deep design to keep Christ and your souls asunder forever. Wisely consider that none ever receives Christ and embrace Christ but unworthy souls. Pray, what worthiness was there in Matthew, Zacchaeus, Mary Magdalene, Paul, before coming to Christ, before faith in Christ? Surely none. If the soul will keep off from Christ until it is worthy, it will never be one with Christ. By believing Christ, of slaves, it will make you worthy sons. Of enemies, it will make you worthy friends. If you diligently search your own hearts, you should find that it is the pride and folly of your hearts which puts upon you bringing a worthiness to Christ. The Lord calls upon moneyless souls, upon penniless souls, upon unworthy souls to come and partake of his precious favors freely. But sinners are proud and foolish, and because they have no money, no worthiness to bring, they will not come, though he sweetly invites them. Well, sinners, remember this. It is not so much the sense of your unworthiness as your pride that keeps you off from a blessed closing with the Lord Jesus. Friends, your weakness is no impediment. It's no hindrance to God using you. Though our calling and giftedness vary according to his purpose, 
and our use in the body. I believe how we are prepared is universal. There are five things every man of God needs to know before he can be used effectively by God. First, he needs to know the Lord. What I mean by that is not necessarily accepting Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. What I mean by knowing the Lord is that he has to have walked with God through thick and thin and been found faithful. He cannot live a vicarious spiritual life. Second, he needs to know himself. He needs to know his strengths, weaknesses, and he needs to know what God has called him to. If he does not know himself, then he will rely upon others to define who he is. Third, he needs to know his Bible. He needs to know what it says, what it means, how to apply it. Not just to his own life, but to the lives of others. Fourth, he needs to know people. He needs to have relationships with a range of peoples from all different races and sociocultural economic strata. Without it, he will be severely handicapped in dealing with people. Last, he needs to know the world. He cannot just know his world, but he must know the realities of life in the broader world so that he can emphasize, empathize, and speak to it. If any of these components are, mis are missing, he can risk being unsure of himself, not having confidence in God's ability, won't know how to relate to people. This leads us to our last heading, the comfort. Verse 16. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring, bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. Now, when the Lord tells you that he's with you, what else do you need? He had called Gideon, he had assured him of victory, and now he gives, him the, he gives him the comfort of his very presence. When the Lord says he's with you, then you're in good company. This is the same promise that the Lord had given to Moses in Exodus 3. He'd given the same promise to Joshua, Joshua 1. See, God didn't wait for Gideon to come up with a good plan, a solid idea. God was going to do it. Gideon was merely the agent. If we can contrast Gideon to Samson once more, it is this assurance of God's presence that further separates the two. Gideon never presumed that God was always going to be with him. He knew that he was too weak 
to do what God wanted and, if that, and that if it was going to be done, that it had to be God. Samson, on the other hand, presumed upon God being with him. Sadly, he presumed at the wrong time and in the wrong place. The result was disastrous. The difference is that Gideon wanted to do the will of God. And in this, he knew that he was called, sent, and empowered. Samson, to put it lightly, had other agendas. And he assumed that God had co-signed his personal initiative. God blesses his agenda, not ours. The secret of Samson's strength was in what he possessed in the natural. The secret of Gideon's strength was that he had been prepared, called, and sent by God. This is the secret of our strength as well. God is with us. We don't presume to do things that we've not been called to, like Samson. But rather, we don't trust in ourselves. We abide in our calling, and we stay close to Christ. Of course, Gideon, in this passage that we've just read, is still wrestling with his own weakness, and he asks God for a sign. And this is okay. What he was seeking were evidences of God being with him. Gideon needs to know in his knower that God is with him. And of course, God obliges. In conclusion, what we've read is Gideon's call, his confidence, and his comfort. How God meets us in our own threshing floors where we have to come to terms with our own weakness and learn that the Lord is our strength. We've seen by contrast that apart from our own threshing floor experience, we'll think it's all about us, our ability, our strength. Ultimately, what this passage teaches us is that God can use anybody for anything and that we bring nothing to the table. Nothing we possess in the natural qualifies us to do the work of the Lord. We must be called to his work and in walking in his calling, are we given his ability and his comfort. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for being with us. Father, I pray that the word would take root, that it would yield much fruit, that we would have a threshing floor experience, that we would reckon with our own weakness, with the greatness of the, the duty that is set before us, that we would rest and trust in your calling, Father, that we would believe you, believe your word. Make us men of valor, Father. Make us men of might, dear Lord. Teach us to abandon our own strength and our own resources. In Jesus' name, amen.